0: If you would take your Bible and open to the book of Joshua, we're going to be in Joshua chapter 6 this morning. This is going to be a story that even if you don't have a lot of church background or a lot of Bible background, and I want to say up front, sometimes we have to be really careful that we don't come and say, well, you can only come if you know X or if you have this particular background. We want this to be a place that you can come and Learn about the things of Scripture, learn about the things of God, even if you're not carrying a lot of Bible background or church background with you. And so if we ever step across the line and start talking about things and you think, man, I just don't know what they're talking about, email me. Reach out to me, catch me after the service and say, oh, and you used a word, I have no clue what it means. Most of the people that were nodding along, they didn't know what I meant either uh, when I used whatever word it might have been or whatever story that comes up from the Bible. Sometimes we uh, just kind of go along to get along when it comes to church, and we don't want to do that. We want to say, even these stories like this morning with the wall of Jericho that you might have heard several times that God would speak to us in a fresh way. I just feel a deep weight this morning that God would use this particular story that's so familiar in a lot of ways, but he would use it to re-engage our hearts with his plan for our lives, with his plan for his church, about how God works in the world, that God would use this in, in a fresh way this morning. And so I realize we've we've prayed a couple of times this morning, but We don't come here to limit the number of times we pray in a worship gathering just to make it efficient. I just feel this deep need for us to go before the Lord in prayer as we get started this morning. So would you pray with me um, at this time? Father, we've seen about your glory, about your holiness, about your power, God, let us be awestruck by that. Let us be overwhelmed by who you are, by how you want to work in our lives. I know I'm tempted every day, every week, just to live day to day, hour to hour, not giving any thought to what it is that you have created this world, that you have created us in your image for your glory, that we don't exist for our own purposes. God, we exist to bring you glory. God, we don't want to waste our lives. We don't want to waste this worship gathering, Father. Thank you for what it means to come together and just have conversations in the hallway, to be able to talk together when we're dismissed from here, to pray, to sing, to study scripture. God, begging you to transform our lives from the inside out, transform our church from the inside out. God, use us for your glory and your glory alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So I know all of us have uh, kind of these defining experiences in life, especially uh, if you're coming from a perspective of being married, those early days of marriage. For Amanda and I, many of you know this particular part of our story, but if you don't, uh, not long after we were married, we moved to New Orleans. People have bad New Orleans experiences. I realized that. We had an amazing New Orleans experience. We've, we fell in love with the city, still love the people in the city uh, to, to this day. But we moved there just before Hurricane Katrina happened. And in that time of trying to find a local church, I know many of you go through that experience. You might be going through that experience right now of trying to find a church home, figure out where you fit. We were doing that. We had just gotten married. We'd moved to a new city. How are we going to find a place to connect? And of all the places there in New Orleans, God led us to a place called Edgewater Baptist Church. Um, Edgewater Baptist Church is not the best name for a church uh, when you're taken out by Hurricane Katrina. I want to show you a picture of Edgewater Baptist Church in the, the days after Hurricane Katrina. So, This was where we worshiped with our our friends there. The amazing thing about Edgewater Baptist Church is when we first got there, one of the first people we met was a man named David Platt. Um, David and Heather were attending Edgewater at the time. Didn't realize David was or how God was going to to use David. Uh, he's now the president of the International Mission Board and he served in many different ways. Uh, another person who was a part of this church is a man named Robbie Gallaty. Robbie has written a lot of discipleship books uh, recently. Several professors from both uh, University of New Orleans and Tulane went there. There were prominent business people. The thing that stood out to me about this church though was it wasn't a big church. Wasn't a fancy church. If you, if you go actually to the next slide, I think you'll have a chance to, uh, to see as it was, this is kind of, I probably climbed that ladder on the front there as we were uh, trying to repair, trying to repair the building. We met out in the parking lot for, uh, for several months after Hurricane Katrina. But one of the things we learned at this church was a prayer. And on your bulletin that you got as you came in, if you turn it over to the back, there's a prayer that Edgewater used. And I reached out to our friend Chad, who is pastoring Edgewater now, one of the best pastors I know. All the great pastors in America are pastoring churches of 100 and 150 people. Uh, Chad is probably one of the greatest pastors I know, and he's been faithful there many years. And we were talking about this prayer this week. Edgewater prays a prayer, and they say, God, give us the city and the nations, and do it in such a way that only you get the credit for it. God, give us the city and the nations, and do it in such a way that only you get the credit for it. That prayer comes from Joshua 6, and it's come to define Edgewater over these years. And it's a a prayer that I want us, as Emmaus, to think about this morning as we think about Joshua 6. God, would you give us the city? And that doesn't mean us, this particular church, as if we become the most popular church in the city. It just means, God, would you show us what it looks like when your victory breaks out? In our city, in the area around us. God, give us the city, and then give us the nations, and do it in such a way that only you get the credit for it. What we're gonna see this morning is three things about how that works God's victory, God's methods, and God's glory. So we're gonna start in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1. I want you to know from the very beginning, when we pray that prayer, God, give us the city, we pray that because God's victory is certain. It's not a maybe, it's not up in the air, there's no betting odds against it, God's victory is certain. Joshua chapter six, verse one. Now Jericho was shut up inside, I know you're not supposed to say shut up, but it just says it right there in the Bible, okay? So we're just reading it as it is. Jericho was shut up inside and outside because of the people of Israel. None went out, and none came in. Now, what does it mean here that Jericho was shut off? Well, obviously, there's a there's a military aspect of this, that the city walls are closed off. But don't miss kind of the uh, second layer of the story that's going on here. When it says that Jericho is shut off, it means that literally they have closed themselves off to the things of God. So not only are they closed off to the outside world, but this is, in a sense, a metaphor. It's explaining that the people have shut God out of their life. They've said, I don't want anything to do with his plans. I don't want anything to do with his purpose, with his power. We have closed ourselves off, which, ironically, remember the story of Rahab? And Rahab comes from chapter 2 here in Joshua, if you weren't with us that week. But Rahab has an open window where she lets the spies down. Rahab's open window in Joshua 2 is meant to contrast with the city of Jericho being shut off in chapter 6. So you have this imagery of Rahab opening herself up to the things of God, and the rest of the city is shut off from the things of God. Are they going to allow God into their life, so to speak, or are they going to shut him out? You don't have to go very far to find the application there for for our own lives, for our own world. Are we shutting out the things of God? Are we shutting out his power? Are we shutting out his plans? Have we closed ourselves off? Or, like Rahab, are we open to what God wants to do through his people, that his victory is certain? Our attempts, what Jericho is going to find out, is our attempts to shut God out ultimately will not work. His plans are always certain. They will always come to completion. When we were there in New Orleans and we were getting ready to evacuate for Hurricane Katrina, Hurricane Katrina, uh, as it was getting ready to come and was beginning to turn toward New Orleans, they said, hey, you've got to get out of town. So we began to pack some things up. We put most of the things on top of our bed or in the top of a closet. Didn't work out very well, but it was a good idea at the time. And then, in what seemed like a brilliant move, At the time, as we were leaving, we shut our front door to our apartment, and I'd taken a huge roll of duct tape, and I duct taped our door shut so the water would not come in to our apartment if it came up a few inches. And I remember as I walked away just feeling so proud as a new husband. We hadn't been married very long. Here I have duct taped our door so the the water just laughed at my duct tape as it poured in through the windows and around the door and did all the damage that duct tape trying to stand against the waters that came with hurricane katrina was about as effective as us trying to stand against the plans of god so many times we try to resist We try to push back. You may be here and you have spent years and years pushing back against the plans of God, trying to shut yourself out from all that God would want to do in your life. This morning I was talking with one of our members, and she was telling me about a recent story of an 87-year-old friend. Maybe it was even a family member. I can't remember the exact story. But it was an 87-year-old person in her life who had been crusty, who had been turned off to the things of God and wanted nothing to do with that, and just in the last few weeks, turned to the Lord for salvation, cried out to God for salvation. There are probably people like that in your life who spend their whole life trying to keep God at bay, closing themselves off to what God wants to do. And we have to come to that point of saying, are we going to open the window? Are we going to say, God, I do believe who you are? And I'm gonna, we're going to use an imagery here in just a second, but I want you to see verse 2 really quick before we see that imagery. Verse two, the Lord said to Joshua, see, I have given Jericho into your hand with its keen and mighty men of valor. Now the key phrase there is have given. Has Joshua attacked the city yet? No, hasn't done it yet. The battle is still out in front of them, but God says, I have given. Time out for a grammar moment here. Uh, But that type of verb is called a perfect verb. It means an action that's already been completed and has ongoing results or consequences. So it's called a perfect verb. I have given. The battle has not taken place, but God looks to Joshua and says, I have given you this city. In other words, it's as if it's already happened. It's as if the victory has already been won. Remember that in God's world, according to God's plans, the victory has already been won. Through Jesus Christ, there is no battle that you would take up on your own that is going to win a victory beyond what he has already accomplished. And there's a quote on your note sheet there on the back of your bulletin from J.D. Greer that I think sums this up so well. When we are talking about Christianity, we're not talking about do this, we're not talking about don't do this, we're talking about what has already been done. It's not do, it's not don't, Christianity is done. It is what has been done for you. And that quote for me this week opened up so much of what's going on here about the idea that God's victory is certain. If you are not a follower of Jesus, but you're curious Maybe you've been closed off to the things of God, but but you still find yourself sitting in worship services. Let me give you a picture of what it means to be saved. This came from a professor in college and made a lot of sense to me. It's the picture of raising the white flag. The picture of salvation, the picture of you putting your faith in Christ for salvation is the picture of raising the white flag. You've been turned off to the things of God, You've shut yourself out. You said, I don't want anything to do with that. I'm not going to be a religious person. I'm not going to follow all these religious laws. You've done all these things. And then finally, God's glory comes in front of you. The plan of salvation that Jesus has already done for you, everything necessary for salvation. And you come to that point and you say, finally, I'm just going to raise the white flag. I'm going to stop fighting. I'm going to stop shutting God out. I'm going to raise the white flag and say, God, I believe that you've given the victory despite everything else that's going on in my life despite all my checkered past despite my circumstances you have given the victory it's god's to give and it's absolutely certain if that's your situation this morning raise the white flag because his victory is certain but then in verse 3 we find something next so not only is his victory certain but his ways, his methods, are very surprising to us. So verse three, you shall march around the city, all the men of war going around the city once. Thus, shall, thus you shall do for six days. Seven priests shall bear seven trumpets of ram's horns before the ark. On the seventh day, you shall march around the city seven times, and the priests shall blow the trumpets. Now admittedly, this is a strange battle plan. <laughs> you could go through the walls, over the walls, under the walls, try to, God says no, I want you to walk around the walls. So my, my football career was very short-lived in life. Uh, I didn't really grow, uh, develop until I was like a senior in high school, so as a junior high kid, middle school kid, I was slow, short, small, Didn't really amount to anything when it came to football, but went to a little school, so everybody kind of played football. I was the quarterback in our little junior high football league that we had. And in junior high, they don't let the coaches be out on the field usually. The plays have to come in from the sideline. The problem is if you send a play in from the sideline with a seventh grader, between the time that he left the sideline and the time he gets to the huddle, he's really not sure what the play is. So there you are as a little seventh grader playing quarterback, and you see your buddy running in from the sideline, and he gets out the huddle and you say, okay, what's the play? And he just stares at you, <laughs> what did coach say? I don't remember, you, he just told you on the sideline. Or they, worse yet, they would get out to the huddle and they would mention a play and you thought, <laughs> there's no way the coach said to do that and you say is that what the coach said i think so i think you said that this situation of joshua getting this play from god must have felt like the little junior high quarterback in the huddle saying god are you sure we could run any play right now and you want us to go around and around the city for six days and then do it seven times on seven day? that's really your plan yeah because God's methods are not our methods. God's ways are not our ways. God works in such a way that only he gets the credit for it. And what you find here in these verses, priest, seven trumpets, ram's horn, ark, seventh day, seven times, you don't have to be a particular Bible scholar or a very religious person to know all those words have a lot more to do with worship than they do with military strategy. And that's going to become extremely important here in a couple of minutes, that these references have a lot more to do with worship than they do with military strategy. Look down in verse 5. You get down to verse 5. When they make a long blast with the ram's horn, when you hear the sound of the trumpet, then all the people, so not only the religious leaders are involved here, but all the people will give a great shout, and the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people shall go up, everyone straight before him. A couple of word plays that are pretty cool in this verse. Um, so when it says the people shall go up, it's the word Allah which becomes connected with the word alleluia, to give, to give praise. So the fact that the people will go up into the city, once again, has more to do with worship than it does to do with a military strategy. It's connected to the word for praise. It's also connected to this idea of crossing over. So chapter 3, when they're crossing over the Jordan River, chapter 4, when they're doing the same thing, now in chapter 6, Joshua continues to use these phrases that have more to do with holiness, more to do with worship than they do with military strategy. The next verses, verse six down through verse 14. We're not gonna read those in detail right now, but that's essentially the people carrying out God's plan exactly. So they are obedient to God's plan. Jump down to verse 15. You get down to verse 15. Scroll down your phone just for a second. Uh, Whoops. Verse 15. On the seventh day, They rose early at the dawn of day and marched around the city in the same manner seven times. It was only on that day that they marched around the city seven times. And then verse 16, at the seventh time when the priest had blown the trumpets, Joshua said to the people, shout for the Lord has given you the city. Okay, so obviously really quickly, connect in your mind verse two where God says, I will give you, I have given you the city. And then here in verse 16, where he says, shout for the Lord has given you the city. So what the storyteller is doing here is he's connecting verse two with verse 16 and showing you how everything in between is meant to tie together to this is how God is going to give the city. So God's ways are surprising. And then on your notes, there's kind of three subpoints below there and I want us to walk through that. The first thing we find out is his methods are surprising, the way he does things. And this is where the notes go blank. And I, want to, I want you to fill in a couple of things. If you, if you have a pen and, and we're trying to think through, so what? So, so how are God's methods so surprising? How are they so strange? The first is that he is more interested in worship and holiness than he is in strategy. So one of the things that makes God's method so surprising is he is more interested in worship and holiness than he is in strategy. And we've seen this a couple of times already in the book of Joshua. But just when we think that God's going to give them a strategy to do something that makes sense, he calls them back to worship. And just when you think he's gonna give these specific commands, he calls them to holiness. One of the reasons that he does this is because we're so apt To be given a plan, to be given sort of a blueprint, and then we become more infatuated with that plan than we do with the giver, the one who has given us that plan. Guys are especially bad. Not it's not just guys, but we think about this in reference to guys a lot of time. We just want to know. Just tell us what to do. Just tell us what to do. We have we have this. Just lay out the plan. I'll go do it. Yeah, but God's going after something deeper. He's looking for our heart. He's not looking to say, here's the plan, go follow this. Remember what that quote from J.D. Greer was? It's not about do and don't, it's about done. We want to jump to do this, don't do this. And God says, no, you have to get done first. You have to understand what it is to worship me. You have to understand what it is to give yourself fully to me. And so even as a church, we need to talk about strategy. This whole point doesn't mean don't make strategies or make dumb plans, that's not what it's about. It just means our plans matter zero if we don't get worship and holiness right. If we have not given our hearts completely to the Lord and we are not committed to living completely for Him, no plan makes any difference at that point. And I guess that's the weight I feel for myself. That's the weight I feel for Emmaus. Uh, You even hear me trying to talk this out on Sunday mornings the last few weeks. We need to make some plans. We need to kind of think about God, where are you leading us at church? How are we going to do X, Y, and Z? I just feel this deep burden as a pastor that we would do that and we would skip over worship and holiness. And if we do that, we've wasted our time. It's been a complete waste of anything that we would do at that point. Here's the second thing that's kind of surprising about God's methods, maybe another thing you want to write down. Uh, God's methods are usually not efficient. In other words, God's methods are usually not efficient. Usually, God works in slow, deliberate, consistent ways. Uh, so he tells them here, I want you to march around the city. What do you want us to do the next day? Uh, kind of do the same thing. Day three, uh, let's mix it up. Let's do the same thing again. <laughs> day four, uh, same thing. Six days, they do the same thing. How frustrated Do you think some of the go-getters among the Israelites are by day four, five, and six? God, this is ridiculous. We did this the day before, and the day before, and the day before. And God says, yeah, I do it three more times. What do you do on day seven? I want you to do it seven times. And then finally you shout, and you see God working in a particular way. We're so driven, and I'm going to use a word that's kind of a churchy word, but discipleship. So how do we become more like Christ? How do we grow in our faith? We so want discipleship to be efficient, to run through some sort of formula. Just do X, Y, and Z, and all of a sudden you'll appear to be a great Christian. Ah, it just doesn't work that way, does it? God is so often slow. He's into consistency. He's into discipline. And what you find out is over time, oh my word, God has transformed my life. He's changed me from the inside out, and I didn't even see it coming. If you're a person that's driven toward efficiency, don't let that get in the way of God's work of discipleship in your life. You're going to struggle. If you're a perfectionist, this is particularly hard. Ah, I just can't get it right. If someone would just tell me what to do, I would do that, and then I would be the greatest Christian ever. No, you wouldn't, because then you would be prideful, and then you would just destroy everything that God wanted to do in your life. It's not about that. It's the slow, deliberate, consistent work that God wants to do in our lives that he does it, and, then, and this is also tied to his methods. He does it in such a way that no single person gets extra acclaim out of what happens. And we're going to talk about this more in 2018 when we talk about spiritual gifts. But, but when the trumpets are blown and the walls come down, nobody looks at one of the trumpet players and says, man, that is the best you have ever played the trumpet. Like you are the greatest trumpet player of all time. No, that would be ridiculous. Nobody. God made that happen. The claim doesn't go to the trumpet player. It goes to God who's done this. And so God works in these ways. And probably most surprising is God's mercy. And I think I actually wrote that one out in particular on your notes. But it started with an M. And Method started with an M. So I went ahead and wrote it out on your notes. But God's mercy. Jump back in your phone or your Bible really quick. I want you to see this. When you get down to verse 17, watch what happens. So we're talking about God's mercy here. The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. So much of the story is about judgment. Around this is the idea of how could a good God tell the people to go in and destroy a city? In November, the first two Sundays of November, we're going to take on that subject of holy war. Because uh, that's a that's a big a big topic. Actually, the the second and third Sundays of of November is when we're going to do that. What does it mean that God calls the people to destroy the city? So there's that idea. But look in the middle of verse 17. What happens? Only Rahab, the prostitute, and all who are with her in her house shall live, because she hid the messengers whom we sent. So right connected with judgment is this idea of God's mercy, this idea of God's salvation. And then what happens for the next few verses is you get this alternation, this this purposeful back and forth between judgment and salvation. So watch how this happens. In verse 18, so it's going to go back to destruction. Verse 18, But you keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. That verse previews chapter 7, which will come next week. Verse 19, But all silver and gold and every vessel of bronze and iron and are holy to the Lord. They shall go into the treasury of the Lord. So the people shouted, in verse 20, And the trumpets were blown. As soon as the people heard the sound of the trumpet, the people shouted a great shout, and the wall fell down flat. So the people went up into the city, every man straight before him, and they captured the city. Verse 21, Then they devoted all in the city to destruction, both men and women, young and old, oxen, sheep, and donkeys with the edge of the sword. Oh, that's that's weighty, this idea of destruction. But look what happens in verse 22. But to the two men who had spied out the land, Joshua said, Go into the prostitute's house and bring out from there the woman and all who belong to her as you swore to her. So the young men who had been spies went in and brought out Rahab and her father and mother and brothers and all who belonged to her. And they brought all her relatives and put them outside the camp of Israel where where they would be safe. Verse 24, it goes back to judgment. They burned the city with fire and everything in it. Only the silver and gold and the vessels of bronze and iron they put into the treasury of the house of the Lord. Verse 25, it's going to go back to mercy. Verse 25, but Rahab, the prostitute, and her father's household and all who belonged to her, Joshua saved alive. And she has lived in Israel to this day because she hid the messengers whom Joshua sent to spy out Jericho. Okay, if you're a Bible underliner, highlighter, your phrase is in the middle of verse 25, Joshua saved alive. Just a reminder, the word Joshua, the name Joshua, is, com- is directly connected to the name Jesus, the God who saves, God saves. Middle of 25, the whole point of the story of Jericho is seeing that God, in the midst of destruction, brings salvation, brings mercy. This is the craziest thing about the work that God does through Jesus Christ as the Messiah, as the rescuer. That when he comes, he comes born to an unwed teen mom. He lives most of his life in total obscurity. He spends three years with 12 guys who really struggle most of the time, and one of them runs away at the end. He gains victory by dying Not by conquering with the sword. Everything that the world would say, this is the method to become a great king and a rescuer, he seems to do the opposite of. He's merciful in ways that people never would imagine. He can't stand the religious people, and he hangs out with the prostitutes and sinners so much of the time. You see all of these things from the story of Joshua that show up in the story of Jesus, how his ways are not our ways. His methods of salvation are not what people would ever expect that God would do to save his people. But that's where the power is found. It's found in the fact that God has done something that we could never do for ourselves. And God has done something in a way that only he would get the credit for it. Philippians chapter 2 kind of ties into this. Philippians 2. Though he was in the form of God, Jesus Christ did not, equi- did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Go back to Joshua really quick and look at the last two verses in chapter six. Verse 26 Joshua laid an oath on them at that time, saying, curse before the Lord, be the man who rises up and rebuilds the city Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn shall he lay its foundation, and at the cost of his youngest son shall he, be set, up, uh, shall he set up its gates. A little bit confusing to find out what's going on there in verse 26. Uh, It ties back to Deuteronomy 13 and a a reference that's made there about the curse of God being on someone who would rebuild a city in which people had rebelled against his ways. I think also uh, you can find a little bit of Tower of Babel situation going on in this reference here that the people would build a great city to gain fame for themselves and then God turns them away from that plan and says no we're not we're not going to go that direction verse 26 the reason the city is not rebuilt is because the attempt to rebuild it would be to bring great glory to whoever builds it and the whole point of the story is that God received the glory not anyone else so that leads to verse 27 The Lord was with Joshua, that's the the promise from chapter 1, the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame was in all the land. Now you say, Owen, so on my notes, on the back of my bulletin, it says God's glory is expansive. This is all about God's glory, and verse 27 says that Joshua's fame was in all the land. How do you put those two together? Well, that's a good question. Here's the first thing. If this story was really all about Joshua's fame, you wouldn't have chapter 7 coming very next, and you wouldn't have Hebrews chapter 4 in the New Testament. What you find is that Joshua was not the ultimate savior of the people, that there was another savior to come who would receive all the fame, all the glory was come to him. Also, just a note, in this story, we're not Joshua, remember? We want so badly to set ourselves up as a hero. We're not, we're not that. This is not about our, any fame that would come to us. It's about the praise and honor and glory that would go to God. Guess where you find that? You find that in Philippians 2, immediately after those verses we read earlier. So Philippians 2, verse 9, what happens after Jesus humbles himself? God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Our desire, God's plan, is that every person on earth, every created being would give him glory. The worst thing we could ever do is attempt to take that glory for ourselves to in some way say it's about me, not about God, when we realize, no, it's all about him and not about us. Our greatest desire as a church is that he would receive glory, not us. I put a question on your notes that I really want us to think about for just a second as we wrap up. Here's the question. What might God do in and through Emmaus that people would look and say, Only he could do that. What would God do in and through our church that people would look and say only he could do that? So one of my concerns about pastoring at church is that someone would look and see what happens and say, oh sure, I could see how they would do that you know, they had more people or more money or they had that facility and, and they were able, able to do that. You know, they attracted more people, had better programs, developed more ideas. Oh God, let nobody ever look at us and say, oh, I can see how they were able to do that. The danger in church is that we would ever have like a just add water idea. Oh, there it is, just add a little bit of water and sure, I, I can see where that came from. What would God do here that people would look and say, I have no idea how that happened there? What would God do through us that people would look and say, I have no idea how that group of people was able to do that? People would look and say, that could only have been God. His victory shows up. He does it in a way that only he gets the glory for it, and all we do in response is we worship him, we celebrate his victory, we submit ourselves to his plans, and we live ultimately for his glory. That that would be our only desire, is to do that. What will it look like for God to do that? I don't know, but I desperately want to find out with you what that looks like. That we would give ourselves to him saying, God, give us the city and give us the nations and do it in such a way that only you get the glory for it. Do it in such a way that only you get the credit for it. We're gonna sing a song about that here in just a second as we wrap up. After I pray for us, we're gonna have a time of of singing a song about asking that God would do that among us. During this song, you have the opportunity to pray There'll be people up here at the front to pray for you. During the song, we're going to grab those offering plates that are near us, and we're going to pass those around. If you're a guest here or you just need someone to pray for you, take that card in the seat back in front of you. Take that card and place that card in the plate as it comes around and say, I just need someone to pray for me. Here's another thing you can do with that card, and hear, hear me really closely on this. On that guest card in the seat back in front of you, there's a white space at the bottom. Maybe God is calling you in that white space on the bottom of that card to write white flag. You've tried to shut God out of your life. You've tried to resist his work. But it's time to raise the white flag and say, God, I desperately need your salvation in my life. If you're not comfortable walking down here to the front to tell me that, Write on that card, white flag, and we will reach out to you, and we will pray for you, and we will walk alongside you. Let me pray for us. We're going to sing together. We're going to pray together. We're going to respond to God during this time. Father, thank you for a story like Joshua 6. I know we've, uh, we've seen songs about that little story. We've studied about it in vacation Bible school as kids or in Sunday school. But God, I pray that you would use this story this morning to remind us of your victory, to remind us of how you want to work in our lives, and our church, that, that you would remind us of how great you are. And so God, alongside our friends at Edgewater in New Orleans, alongside our friends at churches around this city and this region, alongside our brothers and sisters in Christ on the other side of the globe, God, we pray that you would give us the city and you would give us the nations and you would do it in such a way that only you get the credit for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.